This morning's message comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 1 to 3. And the title for this morning's message is A Shared Confession. A Shared Confession. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 1 to 3. And the Word of God says this. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says, Jesus is accursed. And no one can say, Jesus is Lord, except in the Holy Spirit. Please join me in prayer. <clears throat> Our gracious God, Heavenly Father, Lord, once again, we pray that you would focus our attention upon you and upon your word. We pray, Lord God, that you would clear our minds from all of the distractions of this world. And we pray that by your Holy Spirit, Lord, you would rivet our attention upon you. We pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would teach us your word. You would enable us to understand it rightly. We pray, Lord God, that you would guide my words and that the words that I speak would be accurate and in line with biblical truth. And Father, in the end, we pray that you would direct our attention heavenward and that you would feed our souls, that you would increase our faith, that you would increase our love for you. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So as we begin this chapter, chapter 12 in 1 Corinthians, it's important to note that chapters 12, 13, and 14 all have to do with spiritual gifts. Three chapters have to do with spiritual gifts and how they are to be used within the church and within corporate worship. And thus, the proper understanding and use of spiritual gifts apparently are tremendously important in the mind of Paul. He spends three chapters on this topic. We often tend to lose sight of that, especially when we get to chapter 13. We think that these chapters are all disjointed, but this is one subject in chapters 12 13, all the way to the very end of chapter 14. Because in the mind of Paul, how these gifts are being manifested, how they are being used within the church is extremely important with regards to church unity. And thus, by way of background, chapter 12... Paul is going to address the theological truth that while there are many different uh, kinds of people within the church, there are many different kinds of gifts within the church, we are all one body. 
That's going to be his main point throughout all of chapter 12. We are all one body. No member is more important than another. Regardless of what place or what position they hold within the church, no member of the church is more significant to God or less significant than any other. And God assigns, God sovereignly assigns each person, whatever gift they may have, and he sovereignly assigns each person to whatever role or position they may fulfill within the church. But then in chapter 13, Paul is going to drive home the theological and extremely important truth that love is more important than anything. Without genuine love within the church, without a deep and genuine and heartfelt love for God, without a deep and genuine and heartfelt love for one another, the church is destined to fail. It doesn't matter the level or the kind of talents that might exist within a church. It doesn't matter the level of education that might exist within a church. Without love, Paul is going to argue in chapter 13, it's all meaningless. And the church is destined to fail because disunity and divisions and factions will take root without true love. And then in chapter 14, Paul is going to address the fact that spiritual gifts must be used in an orderly manner. Because God is a God of order. What we do in worship must be done in an orderly fashion. There must be purpose. There must be meaning. There must be reason to what we do. Because God is a God of order. He's a God of reason. He's a God of logic. He's a God of rationale. And the body of Christ is to be a reflection of the God we worship. So church should not be a place of chaos, but a place of order. So again, chapter 12, many different people, many different gifts. We're all one body. And because we are one body, chapter 13, we ought to love our own body. We ought to love one another. Love is preeminent above all. And that love for one another and the gifts that we have going into chapter 14 should drive us to use those gifts in worship in an orderly manner that brings great, great glory to God. And if you don't believe me, go back and read all of the passages in Exodus and Deuteronomy in particular, but also Leviticus, about how God orders worship in the Old Testament. God desires orderly worship. And so Paul begins this section by addressing the line of demarcation between believers and unbelievers. What is really the thing that distinguishes between believers and unbelievers. In other words, where's the starting point when we begin to look at those who are within the church? It's not about what gifts people have. 
It doesn't have to do with how talented people are. It doesn't have to do with how gifted they are. When we talk about who is actually in the church and who is not in the church. And so Paul is going to lay the foundation. Paul is going to lay the foundation for what will follow later. And that is that we are all one body. And so we ought to love one another, particularly when he gets to chapter 13. So he's laying the foundation for how do we know who's a part of that body. And once we recognize who's a part of that body, he's going to drive forward with, we're all one body and we ought to love each other just as we love our own bodies. Everyone naturally loves themselves unless there is you know, mental illness or mental instability going on, some sort of underlying medical condition or demon possession. But apart from those things, human beings naturally love and care for ourselves. And so when we ask the question, who is saved and who is not, who is within the church and who is not in the church, most of us tend to naturally think about Galatians chapter 5, the fruit of the Spirit, right? We look for the evidence of salvation. You know, our love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control. And to an extent, that is true. That is valid because the evidence of transformation is a transformed life, right? The evidence of conversion is a life that has been converted from living one way to living a different way. And when we don't see that in someone's life, then there is cause to question whether or not they have actually been converted. Because the word, by very definition, conversion, right? It's a mathematical term to change from one thing into something else. And if there's been no transformation, then we have reason to question whether or not there's actually been a conversion. But for Paul, the starting point comes even before that, which is what he's going to talk about in these first three verses. It begins with a profession of faith. It begins with a profession of faith. What does the person believe? What does that person say they believe? Specifically, what do they say about Christ? Remember, Jesus asked Peter that question. Who do you say that I am? What do these people believe about the person of Jesus Christ? And that is an important starting point. Because when we look at world religions, Muslims, Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses would all acknowledge the historicity of the person of Jesus Christ. But what do they say about him? Who is he? Who is Jesus to you? It also underscores the way that Paul begins this chapter, underscores the importance of creeds, of confessions, Right? What do we believe as a church? What do we believe as Christians? As believers, the church has historically been a confessing church. We write down our confessions historically because we want to be clear about what we believe about Jesus Christ. 
What do we believe about God? What do we believe about the Holy Spirit? What do we believe about the Bible, about God's Word? And so this is ultimately where Paul will go. What do people confess about Christ? And so first of all, before we begin, if you're taking notes, this text nicely breaks down into three subpoints. In the beginning part of verse 1, the first half of verse 1, we could say verse 1a, Paul will introduce a new topic. And then in the second half of verse 1 and verse 2, so verse 1b and verse 2, he will give us the purpose for addressing this topic. Why is he addressing this topic? And then in verse 3, Paul will address the lordship of Jesus as the distinguishing criterion between believers and unbelievers, those who are in the church and those who are not in the church. And so he introduces a new topic in verse 1 by saying, Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, or we could say brethren, uh, the Greek can be taken to either mean just male or male and female, very likely he's uh, I think the old King James using brethren works because he is writing to the church in Corinth. We know that there are women in the church in Corinth. Obviously, he just got done dealing with head coverings. He's then going to, in chapter 14, he's going to talk about women speaking in church. So he's addressing the women as much as he is addressing the men. And so I think now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren would be an accurate trans. But this is Paul's way of transitioning into a different topic, right? We've seen this language before, back in chapter 7, verse 1. He all of a sudden says, now concerning the matters about which you wrote. And then in chapter 7, verse 25, now concerning the betrothed, and then he'll say it again in chapter 8, verse 1, now concerning food offered to idols. We'll see that again in chapter 16, verse verse 1. So this is Paul's way of, uh, of indicating that he is transitioning to a new topic. Some think that when he uses this language, he is referencing something that they have asked him about in a prior letter. That may be true. It is certainly true in chapter 7, verse 1, because he says, now concerning the matters about which you wrote. So he's clearly addressing something that they wrote to him in some uh, prior letter. But when we look at chapter 12, verse 1, now concerning spiritual gifts, there's really not enough context for us to know that Paul is addressing something that they've asked him about. So very likely this is Paul's way of just saying, now I'm switching topics, so follow along with me. We've gotten done, we're done dealing with the Lord's Supper, and now we're going to move into some new topic to um, discuss. It doesn't change the interpretation of the text whatsoever. There's also some debate regarding spiritual gifts. Meaning the phrase, spiritual gifts. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers. Because the noun for gifts in the underlying Greek is not there. The, uh, the word doron. Literally, the Greek reads, now concerning spiritual gifts. Brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. So we have to supply the noun that the adjective is 
uh, modifying spiritual what? Spiritual people, spiritual matters, now concerning spiritual matters, brother, now concerning spiritual people, now concerning spiritual gifts. There's a little bit of debate on that then, then should the word gifts actually be there? I think it should, because beginning in verse 4, he immediately, to the end of the chapter, goes into a very lengthy discussion about spiritual gifts. So very likely that's what Paul has in mind concerning spiritual gifts. Uh, but I think it's important just to know that we are, our English translators are actually supplying uh, that word. Thus, Paul is introducing the topic that he will be on for the next three chapters, is what he is doing here. Obviously, it is a big deal within the church in Corinth. For Paul to spend three chapters on it, very likely the various gifts that people possess within the church is what was causing much of the division, much of the infighting that was taking place within Corinth. People were elevating themselves above each other. I'm more important because I have this gift. You're not as important because you don't have this gift or you don't have a gift at all. And there was a lot of debate going on. It's an important topic today as well, though. Right? This isn't something that doesn't apply to the church today. Because very oftentimes, the topic of spiritual gifts still divides the church. Do they still exist? Or do they not exist? Were they only for the foundation uh, of the church in the New Testament era? And what's the, once the canon was completed, the gifts no longer exist. And if they do exist, what do they mean? What is prophecy? What is tongues? How are they to be used? So this is a topic that still divides the church today. So it is a very important topic. And if you're wondering what the answers are to those questions... Stay tuned. We'll get there. As a little teaser. So he introduces the topic in verse 1. And he's going to explain um, why, he's, uh, why he's addressing it. So now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers. right? So there's the introduction. And now he's going to offer the explanation as to why he wants to address this topic, why it's important. And he begins, or he continues, and says, I do not want you to be uninformed. I don't want you to be uninformed. This is another favorite phrase of Paul. We saw it back in chapter 10, verse 1. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers. He uses it in many other places. You see that same kind of language in 2 Corinthians 1.8, Romans 1.13, Romans 11.25, and various other passages in the New Testament. It's a very uh, common phrase you see in Pauline writing, I do not want you to be unaware. I do not want you to be uninformed. This is Paul's way of saying that I am telling you this, or what I am about to tell you, I am saying this simply because I want to teach you something that you need to know. I want to keep you informed. I want you to be informed. I want you to be educated with regards to theological matters. In other words, Paul understands that this is a touchy subject, right? Any subject 
that causes a lot of friction within the church is also a touchy subject to address. And so Paul says, I'm not addressing this because I want to stir up division within the church. I'm not trying to create more problems or conflict within the church, but this is a topic that needs to be addressed. There are too many ministers today that don't do that. When there is a difficult topic within the church that needs to be addressed, they would rather simply ignore it for the sake of peace. Paul wasn't that kind of writer. He knew that this could create problems within the church, but he also knew it, he knew it needed to be addressed. And of course, when we read 2 Corinthians, we realize that much of what he wrote did upset them, was not well received. Many of them begin to question in 2 Corinthians, who the heck is this guy Paul, and who does he think he is to write this kind of letter to us with all of these rebukes? But he tells them, I do not want you to be unaware. And then he says in verse 2, You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. You know. So he reminds them of their past. He reminds them of what God delivered them from. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols. Statues that don't talk, they don't think, they have mouths that don't move. They have eyes that don't see. These are the kind of gods that you worship and you were led astray by them however you were led. In other words, it doesn't matter how you got there, but that is where you were. What I find interesting and I did not catch this until reading it in the Greek, you know that when you were pagans, the Greek word for pagan there is the Greek word ethnos, which ordinarily, almost everywhere else in the New Testament, is translated as Gentiles. Normally, that's what the word means, Gentiles. And so he says, you know that when you were Gentiles, wait a minute, aren't they still Gentiles? Our English translators are using the words pagan there. But it seems that in Paul's mind, in the mind of Paul, there's only two groups of people in the world. There are the people of God, and there are those who are not the people of God. So he uses that word, you were Gentiles. You were a part of the Gentile world. You were once a part of the people that were not the people of God. Because in the mind of Paul, to place faith in the Mashiach of God, the Messiah, to place faith in the Messiah of God is to be removed from the Gentile world and to become a part of the people of God. Here it seems that Paul is giving us a hint of what he will later address in great detail in the book of Romans. Because remember that the book of Romans was written around 57 AD, the latter part of the 50s AD in 1 Corinthians, as far as we can tell, was written around 53 or 54 AD. So Paul writes 
the letter, the first letter to the church in Corinth, several years before he writes the book of Romans. And in Romans, Paul will say things like, Romans chapter 2, verses 28 and 29, Paul will say, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit. Same kind of wording that Paul uses in 1 Corinthians. By the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. This would have been shocking to the Jewish people. You know, just because you have all the external marks and identifiers of a Jew, that doesn't make you a Jew. Just because you were born to Jewish parents, you were raised in a Jewish culture, you experienced your bar mitzvah, Paul says that doesn't make you a Jew. But a Jew, in other words, a person who is truly a part of the people of God, is one who is circumcised inwardly and of the heart. Well, if that is true, the implication is that the vice versa is also true. Someone who does not place faith in the Messiah of God is a Gentile. You may have been raised in a Jewish family and you may have gone through all of the Jewish traditions and celebrations, but Paul is essentially saying that if you've rejected the Messiah of God, you're really a Gentile. And the Jews, the people of God, are those who have been circumcised in their heart. He'll go on to flesh this out at length when you look at Romans chapter 11, beginning in verse 11. There he'll go to, to great lengths to talk about how unbelieving Jews are broken off and believing Gentiles are grafted in to the one covenant community of God. There are not two people of God. There is one. There are only two groups in the world. There are Jews and Gentiles. And according to Paul, a Jew is one who has placed faith in the Messiah of God. And so Paul reminds them in 1 Corinthians of where they were and where God has delivered them from. You know that when you were Gentiles. How interesting. You were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. But now they are God's people. They once were in darkness, they once were blind, they once were pagans worshipping false idols, but now they are God's people and they enjoy sweet fellowship with God. By reminding them of their past experience, Paul is, is hinting at what he will flesh out primarily uh, in chapter, well, really in the rest of this chapter, beginning in verse 4, but more specifically when we get to chapter 13, verses 1 to 3. And that is that spiritual experiences are not the authenticating mark of a true child of God. That's the point that he wants to begin driving toward. Spiritual experiences are not the authenticating mark 
of a true child of God because even pagans have spiritual experiences. People in false religions have spiritual experiences. That's not the authenticating mark of a true believer, of someone who is truly inside the church. And I think this is important even today because even today there are many people who are looking for experiences within the church. They don't want doctrine. They don't want theology. They don't want Bible. They want a great worship experience. It's one of the reasons many churches have exchanged the centrality of God's Word for the centrality of music. Because music is moving, moves your soul, elevates you to the highest realms of spiritual experience, or they're attracted toward the gifts, speaking in tongues and prophecy and all of these things, and holy laughter and rolling around on the ground because they want an experience. But God, the God of the Bible, is a God who speaks to the mind. He speaks to the mind. Remember what Paul writes, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. You read Paul, just take a concordance and look at how often Paul addresses the mind. Talks about it a lot. Because God is a God, God is a thinking God. He is a rational God. He is a God of logic. Yes, there is a spiritual transformation that takes place, but the Holy Spirit speaks to our mind first. He does. That's why Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God unto, unto salvation. The gospel is first presented to us through our eyes and through our ears and to our minds. And we think about the gospel. And then the Holy Spirit uses that to transform our souls. But God is a thinking, speaking, communicating God. God desires to be known. Yes, He desires to be worshipped. He desires to be loved. He wants us to feel His love toward us. But He wants to be loved and worshipped rightly. And we can only do that through a study of God's Word. So Paul wants to remind them that spiritual experiences are not the authenticating mark of a true believer. And so he says in verse 3, Therefore, 
Therefore, in light of these truths, therefore, in light of the fact that I just want you to be educated, I want you to be informed, therefore, in light of all that God has done for you, how He has delivered you out of that pagan and Gentile world and has made you a part of the people of God, therefore, in light of the fact that spiritual experiences are not the authenticating mark of true Christianity, therefore, I want you to understand with the mind... He doesn't say, I want you to feel. I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God, same wording, by the way, that Paul talked about in Romans chapter 3, in the Spirit. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except in or by the Holy Spirit, by the power of the Holy Spirit. But what does he mean by all of this? Paul wants the church in Corinth to understand that in the church, those who are willing... Those who are willing and those who are able, those who are able to profess Jesus is Lord are on the same side. That's the point that he's getting at. Those who are willing and able to say Jesus is Lord to make that profession are on the same side. There's no reason for there to be divisions among them or infighting among them. They are on the same team is the point that Paul is making. If you're all professing Jesus as Lord, you're all members of the same body. You're all members of the same people of God. This was particularly true in the first century Roman world where Lord was a political title. It was a political title. To say that Jesus is Lord or that Jesus is King could be viewed as treasonous in the first century world. That could land you in a synagogue being flogged by the Jews. It could land you in jail by the Roman government because Caesar is Lord. Not this Jesus guy who was crucified and they had a sign over his head that said, King of the Jews. So Paul says, look, anyone who is willing and able to say that publicly in the first century world, right? That's, that is the, the first distinguishing mark that you need to look at. You know, this is even true today in many uh, places that are hostile to Christianity. Places like China. North Korea, Iraq, Iran, California. No, I mean that. One of the things I had to get used to when I moved to the, uh, the South, the lovely, hospitable South, is that everybody's already saved. None of them go to church, but they're all saved. You know, growing up in Southern California, going to church is not a cultural thing. Calling yourself a Christian is not a cultural thing. Growing up in a place like that, 
If you are in church every Sunday morning, you are pretty serious about your faith. If you are willing to carry a Bible publicly, talk to people about Jesus, identify with Christianity, you must be serious about your faith. You move to the deep south and if you own a, a Bible and a horse, well, you're already a believer. You're, you're halfway there. But this is still true in many places today. That those who are willing and able to stand with Christ, to say Jesus is Lord, in many places in the world, certainly many uh, countries in the Middle East, many countries in the Far East, Thus, no one, Paul's point, no one would possibly say Jesus is Lord except by the power of the Holy Spirit. And not just in terms of boldness. He's not just talking in terms of boldness, but even the ability, even the ability to recognize that Jesus is the Messiah comes from God through the power of the Holy Spirit. We just talked about this this last Wednesday night, when we talked about effectual calling, we talked about irresistible grace. For example, remember that in Matthew chapter 11, the context of Matthew chapter 11, back in verse 18, Jesus is talking about John the Baptist. He says in verse 18, For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, He has a demon. The Son of Man comes eating and drinking, and they say, Look at him, a glutton and a drunkard and a friend of tax collectors and sinners. In other words, it doesn't matter how the gospel is presented to them. These people simply aren't going to believe. So then what makes the difference? Why do some believe and some don't? Here's what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 11, verse 25. And at that, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and the understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. Isn't that amazing? Jesus says, I thank you that you have hidden this truth from certain people. God hides this truth from certain people and he reveals it to others. If you're sitting in this room today and you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God who died on the cross for your sins and rose from the dead three days later, understand it is God who revealed that to you. And you didn't do that on your own. Jesus says that to Peter in Matthew chapter 16. Verse 16, Simon Peter replied, Jesus asked him, who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. Flesh and blood hasn't revealed this to you. What an interesting statement, because Jesus is flesh and blood. Hasn't Jesus been teaching him this for three years? All of the disciples? But yet... Jesus says, you didn't get this from me. 
specifically from a human perspective. But my Father has revealed this to you. And it is this profession of faith which saves people. Romans chapter 10 verses 9 and 10. If you confess with your mouth. If you confess. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. Listen, you will be saved. You will be saved. That is where salvation comes from. It is making that confession that Jesus is Lord of the universe. He's Lord of my life. He is my Lord and my King. Believe with your heart that God raised Him from the dead. You will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified. Salvation comes from simply believing that truth for yourself. I hear it, I understand it, and I believe it. Jesus died on the cross for my sins, for with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Salvation is simply a matter of believing and confessing. Jesus is Lord. He is Lord of this world. He is Lord of the universe and he is Lord of my life. Thus, as Paul is about to go into a very important section in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, where he reminds them that they are all one body. This is what he's telling the church in Corinth. You're all one body. You're all one flesh. You're all members of the same church. He points them back to their shared confession. Y'all confess the same truth. This is important to remember. This is important to remember in a world filled with many Protestant denominations. Many Protestant denominations. That those who hold to and profess the true gospel... We're all a part of the same church. We're all a part of one body. We are all fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. We shouldn't be fighting amongst each other, but rather working together for the advancement of God's kingdom, for the proclaiming of the gospel. But this is also an important truth to remember within the local church. We are all on the same team. We should all work together and not against one another. And this can be difficult in the Western world, right? Where Christianity is often cultural. This can be difficult. We meet people all the time who display no signs of Christianity, but yet profess, right? Particularly in the South. Oh, yeah, I believe that. What you're telling me? Yeah, I, I grew up in the church. I was baptized when I was eight. You know, my daddy was a preacher. It's always my favorite. I'm going to heaven. My daddy was a preacher. 
But remember that for the apostles, and in the New Testament world, in the church in Corinth, to say Jesus is Lord was more than just words. Because to say Jesus is Lord in this day and age, you were risking your life. So to say Jesus is Lord in this day and age meant Jesus is Lord of my life. He is my king. I bow to his will. He stands above the Roman emperor or whoever else. I bow to King Jesus alone. And I serve no one else. To say that Jesus is Lord back then and today means Jesus is Lord of my life. Jesus says it best in John chapter 14, verse 15. It's a, it's a short verse that I, it's one of the first verses I memorized as a new believer some 30 some odd years ago. Just reading through the Bible, it, it just it struck me. It jumped out at me. And I remember highlighting it. And it has always impacted my life. There in John 14, 15, Jesus says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Jesus says, If you truly love me, if I am truly your Lord, as you say that I am, then you will strive to live your life in obedience to the word of God and for the glory of Christ. Because those who say Jesus is Lord, but then go off and live however they want, they don't really mean that. Those who say they love Jesus, but then live any way they want, they don't really mean that. Understand now, I'm not contradicting what I just said. Works add nothing to your salvation. They add zero to your salvation. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart, you will be saved. But if you truly believe that, if you truly understand and believe what Jesus did on the cross for you, that truth, that love should compel you to want to live a life that pleases him. That's what it means to say that Jesus is Lord. In the end, Paul is laying the foundation for the biblical truth that those who place faith in Christ, those who confess Jesus is Lord and live that out are members of the same body. They are one family. We should live like it. We should treat one another like it. We should treat each other like we are members of the same body. Caring for one another. Loving on one another. Willing to work out our differences rather than beating one another over their head with theological differences or staking our corners. Paul wants the church in Corinth to understand you're one body. Live like it. Treat one another like it. Because that is what glorifies and pleases God. Let's pray.
our gracious God and Father. Lord, we thank you for those of us in this room who have been called out of the Gentile world and into a covenant relationship with you. We thank you, Lord God, for revealing that truth to us. We thank you that that truth was not revealed to us by flesh and blood, but by you, by the power of the Holy Spirit. We thank you that you have given us the ability to say, Jesus is Lord. And Father, we pray that as we partake of the Lord's Supper together in unity, we pray that we would be reminded that, that we are all one body, that we all partake of the same bread, we all drink of the same cup, we are all members of the body of Christ. And Lord, we pray, help us to never forget this truth and that we would treat one another in just that way, that we would seek to lovingly uh, uh, keep one another accountable, that we would care for one another, that we would cry with each other, that we would weep with each other, we would rejoice with one another. Help us, Lord God, to truly be one family, one body, one church, one confession. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.